The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Welcome to another episode of The Adventure Jogger. We're going to go into some uncharted territory on this episode of The Adventure Jogger. We're going to go to a very scary place for all of us. We're going to go inside the mind of ultra runners. And to do that, I need a seasoned ultra runner uh, that also is in academia. He's run over 40. I'm going to say closer to 50 ultra marathons, including yeah. nine 100 mile finishes. Dr. Thomas Muller is at yeah. Appalachian State University, and uh, he did some research a couple of years ago. He's doing some more research on ultra runners now, but he actually published the paper Involvement of Ultra Marathon Runners Understanding Intention, Behavior, and Perceived Skill of the Absolute Unitary Being. And we are going to go inside. Your brain, <laughs> Thomas. How are you? Uh, do, or, do you prefer you. you went all at schooling? I should probably call you Doctor uh, Mueller. Yeah, well, I think for this because you know this is an ultra runner show, so I think you know Tom or Thomas would be fine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is really about getting my doctorate because you know when I was getting my doctorate, of course, I was still obsessed with ultra running, which I still am. But I was running a lot and. Of course, I wanted to make my dissertation about ultra running. Yeah. So that's how that all started. And, you know, because of you being kind to me, I'm thinking about, you know, can I replicate this study? And so we could look at then and now sort of longitudinally. Yeah. See, what has anything changed? So that's what I was going to do. Yeah. But Thomas, let's go back just for a minute here. Yeah, Bef sure. Before we get into all this data, um, I can see you. No one else can. There's. I, I want you to I want you to picture in your mind a very scholarly silver-haired gentleman who has seen some life um you are not new to the ultra running world you were in the ultra running game before the big boom hit i, I would say so because i think it was really fringe when i got in you know first 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 ultra and i, I just mentioned you ryan i don't remember i should have kept better stats but i have some memory of what i did but i know my first ultra was 1988 Mountain Massacus 50 Mile. Wow. That's the first one I ever ran. So I got in deep right off the start. Yeah. And when I think I was really good at 50 miles. I was right almost around nine hours, 30 minutes. I was a 930 guy. Yeah. For, for 50 mile. But that was my first one, 88. Yeah. So let's go back to 1988. It's 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 not known. This is a very, like you said, fringe sport. Jogging, yeah. the jogging boom had, had happened in the 80s and yeah. everybody had long yeah. socks and we're doing 5Ks and 10Ks and, yeah. and the occasional weirdo uh, would run a marathon. But in right. 1988, what drew you to the world of ultramarathon and how did you even figure out about it? Because it's not like there was five podcasts and magazines no. and all that. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we'll talk in a minute about this, but back even when I did this study, I had to rely on Ultra Running Magazine, who mm -hmm. had, a, you know, a subscription list. Yep. And then Umstead 100 in, in North Carolina had their entry list email. So, I mean, you had to find people that knew how to get the people. And, you know, I had come up through marathon and triathlon. So I had yeah. done the whole shave body triathlon <laughs> thing. But I think a lot of it happened. I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina, home of Eric Clifton. Okay. Eric Clifton, who was iconic, yeah. right, in, in ultra running. And our paths had crossed in triathlon, and then I was starting to hear about these things. And then there was another individual I met, uh, Frank Kohlenstein, 
who was a soccer coach out of South Carolina somewhere at the time. He went, we all got together through triathlon and then he went to run Western States and I went out there to crew him yeah. probably 87. Oh, wow. So I sort of, I sort of fell into oh, one quick story. I'll never forget this. Mark Hinson was one of the very best triathletes in the Southeast at that time. And he had just done a 20 mile stretch with Frank at Western States mm-hmm. and I was going to take over. And Mark said, he was just covered in silt and dirt. And I remember he said, don't ever try this. And that's when I knew, of course, <laughs> that I'm going to try it. Because I got to pace it, and then it just hooked me. Yeah. So, 87. I mean, this is <laughs> early, early yeah. Western States. What was yeah. the vibe like at Western States in 87? Well, it was so culturally different, you know, because, again, I was a Wisconsin boy. We, you, we've talked about that. Yeah. And I was living in the South for many years. And, you know, South, the South had its own vibe and feel for ultra. You know, mm-hmm. any kind of running, any endurance sport had its own thing. We were... But like you said, with no other real social media or communication, all you had were the magazines, but you got out there, it felt really weird. It was West Coast. Yeah. It was a different vibe, different kind of people. You felt sort of alienated. You know, you didn't know what to expect, but I do remember that regionally, it just felt like Mars to be there. And the terrain, of course, is so different, you know. Yeah, and then coming out of the world of triathlon and marathon road marathon running, and then there you are, 1987, Western States, yeah, where it great. is, I mean, that it's, it is not this well-known thing that mm-hmm. has countless podcasts dedicated to it. There's, no. Nobody knew about it. What was the, what was the runner like? What was, the, what was your impression of the ultramarathon runner at Western States, 1987? Uh, tall, thin, grizzly looking in a buckle. You know, they all had the, the jeans on and there's almost they could be, you know, rodeo cowboy. They almost look like a rodeo cowboy, you know, jeans on. And if you wouldn't see them out of that outfit, you wouldn't even know they were much different. And I think recently just on your show, someone mentioned or I was on your Facebook page, yeah. you know, all the retro or cool ways people used to dress. And, you know, wearing the old cotton dress shirts was really popular back then because, uh, you know, you would just throw them on and then soak them with water. And, you know, there were no tech fabrics, so you just pour water over a guy and that water would soak into those cotton dress shirts. Those were, for some people, those were running tops. Wow. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that your, your nipples didn't get raw. <laughs> right? But, you know, it was this cooling thing before we knew what cooling was. Here's the other deal. There was no nutrition information. You know, no. There's, you know, there's a big bucket of boiled potatoes and you, everything as everybody's touching them and you you dip grab one and then you dip it in the big salt bucket next to it yeah and take off you know and you'd have this big gooey potato dipped in salt well that might be a you know that might be a, a aid station food you know so there wasn't a lot there that yet you know there was some there was some energy drinks but it was not too well developed yet but yeah there there was not a lot of information on what makes you go well what makes you do well yeah what what about aid station you know you talk about the food were there as many aid stations in 87 as there is now or were they a little Um, fewer and farther in between maybe i mean you know i just remember running six seven eight miles between stations was not uncommon yeah you know a lot of them and, and i'll tell you what there were a lot of stations and i won't name races where this stuff was just gone you know, I've, I've got the eight stations in 90-degree races where they says, you know what, pal? You get a half bottle of water, we're out. You know, I, I've, I've had turnarounds with empty water jugs. So, I mean, it was sort of like, and even though that was a scheduled stop, you go, hey, sorry, pal, you know, we're out. 
So, so you know, it wasn't it wasn't where you're going to get your you know three squeeze gels and your certain drink. It wasn't always like that. <laughs> so what you're saying, what you're saying is, Tom, <laughs> you're saying that people were not running up to the aid stations upset that they were out of avocado toast and making a big stink about it online. You were hoping that jug water was still full and there wasn't a lot of backwash in it. That's probably what. <laughs> You know, back in the day, because, you know, it was just different and it was real fringe, but the people were fringe and I just gravitated. They were so they were just like characters, you know, characters. And I can name some, but, you know, especially back in the southeast scene, uh, you know, there were just some people that you knew from around the races. And of course, I was always a mid-pack guy, you know, top 25 percent of the field on my best day. Yeah. But there were people you knew and there, you know, there were just runners, you knew, and, you know, like Connie Gardner. She's still around. She Mm -hmm. turns up and Clifton, of course, was iconic. He was winning everything. And and, and Horton, Dr. Horton, you you see, I still see him around once in a while. But there were there were people that ran and you just see them around. But that was your only communication, that and your little race report and ultra running. You know, there wasn't any, there's not this stream of information day in and day out. You just didn't have that. Andy Jones Wilkins told me that, um, you know, it was magazines for the longest time. And then when the internet kind of launched, everybody had blogs and they would talk shit to each other in each other's (laughs) blogs. Yeah, Yeah, I remember blogging and I can remember when the first emails came in, you know, that you could even email somebody. And uh, I still remember my CompuServe email code from back then. But, you know, you (laughs) You start thinking about how we started to communicate. And I'm a communication professor, so mm-hmm. this, you know, it's all about what I do here. I love this. And to think about how we perceive the sport. And I almost think in that day, and again, back to the psychology of it, we built a lot of the sport in our own minds because mm-hmm. it wasn't just feeding at us. You know, you know, as I go on these Facebook run groups, yeah. 500 people a day are saying, "What? Well, hey, look at me. I ran this six mile. I, back then, you got a little bit of information and the rest you all built in your mind. Yeah, you know, or your your experience at the events. That's all you had. That's interesting, Tom. It really is because nowadays, if you sign up for a race, you can find enough information online yep. that you will know everything to expect. You will yep. know that uh, over at this mileage, there's a waterfall and this yep. and that, yep. and there's. Yep. The, I don't. I wonder if we're lacking some of the surprise some of the in the moment some of the oh, yeah. lure of early ultra running where it was like listen there is no book about western states mm-hmm. there's aid stations every once in a while uh there's gonna be a bucket of water there and some potatoes and yeah. it, it, it didn't break it down like section by by section uh, do you think maybe we were losing a little something well i think the some of the adventures out of it and by the way i was just thinking about when you were speaking a lot of a lot of racing in those days was you had to find that person who did the race before. Yeah, that was all, that's you know if you know hey Clifton ran Umstead forty. I mean back then there were all kinds of these races in the southeast. I think if you someone ran it, they'd give you the five minute. Yeah, yeah. You go out, it's hard the first ten miles. You're going to hit a rock stretch. You know, right? They'd give you this little thing, and that would be what you had. Yeah, you know, and then like masochist. I really didn't know much when I went there the first time, but. You know, I knew Horton had Horton miles at the end because it's all rocks, you know, and I think that last stretch is seven miles and he calls it 4.1 or whatever it was. So those are, but that's what you had. You knew that. You knew that. Yeah. But you didn't have a lot more information. So I think you just had a, you know, you had to run and get this. Remember, no GPS pacer watches. So all you had when you, you run your ass off to the aid station and hope they don't tell you you're houring out. Right. You know, and that happened, right? right? You, hey, you're five minutes, man. You know, you're watching, you're looking, but all you've got is a time clock. Yeah. You, know, you don't have someone 
something clicking off your pace. You don't have any of it. So is that is that worse? Really? Is I, that worse? You I don't know, know. I don't I don't know because I've run races with just a standard like a Timex, yeah. just like a little tiny. Yeah. Just just keep track of the time that I'm doing. And I've done it with with a GPS as well. Mm-hmm. And there is there is something to having no idea where you are. Yeah. Yeah, I just think for us, it was like, I always just try to figure out pace-wise how to get to the next ace chase and about how long it would take. Right. You know, that was it. And I, I used to pace, by the way, I used to be a pacer running with the balloons at the Columbus Marathon, Columbus, yeah. Ohio, when yeah. I lived there, before GPS watches. So I used to take the 11-minute mile group. You'd guess, right? You'd hit yeah. a mile marker and you'd be running, looking, running, looking, and hope I got to get them 11 minutes. Well, it was <laughs> sort of close, but you didn't have any pace. Right. So... You sort of learn, you know, even my first uh, 100 was uh, the very first Vermont, 1989. And and I remember, you know, I, this is how broad it was instead of, like you said, all that information. Yeah. I thought, well, I'm about a 930, 50 mile guy because I'd run a couple 50s. Yeah. And I said, so let's see what I can do to half. That was really all I was thinking. You know, and I yeah. went 10 hours to I went 10 hours to 50 before the wheels came off, you know, in the end. But yeah. the thing is, that's all I was thinking. I didn't know here's where the stations are, what my pace is going to be. You know, you don't have all those, all that data. And that's sort of what this study is about. What kind of data is in your mind? Right. You know, what do you, you don't have much. You just run for the distance. It's yeah. really to think about that first, running that first Vermont 100 in 19. 19- <laughs> 89 you know i mean yeah there's no pomp there's no circumstance you know there's no place to post about it if if it's not on strava tom does it really happen i i (laughs) I, somewhere in ultra running magazine you know i remember this there was a bunch of really cool local people and this local guy took me in i mean they were great to us they took us in we stayed there they fed us this was all part of like the the local civic yeah contribution and then the guy wanted to pace me and of course, he was in way over his head, and you know, trying to even keep up with me yeah. at eighty miles because he's trying to pace. But it was just here's a nice guy trying to help out in the community, you know. And it was just that that was sort of the country feel of the whole thing. Did did Vermont yeah. have buckles the first year for finishers? Yeah, it did. I didn't go twenty four because I had a bunch of trouble. I think I went twenty six thirty. But yeah, they they did have some kind of buckle. Yeah, they did. So when you're walking around back in the late 80s early 90s with yeah. a buckle that looks like makes you look like a rodeo cowboy yeah. that that's quite a conversation piece even now it's a conversation piece yeah. back then they must have, have assumed you were a lunatic or something well like i said it was fringe you know and i think you only lived among your own you mm-hmm. know it was sort of like an ultra leper colony you know you're <laughs> you're among your own and there's not much else out there you know because people unless you really went and pursued it like you said, there's nowhere to get that information. Ultra Running Magazine. Right. So you'd look at what was coming up. And remember, in those days, it wasn't hard to get in races. Right. You know, you you wrote a check and filled out a running form, right. some kind of entry form and mailed it in. So it was easier to choose because it wasn't like you're going to get locked out six months early. Yeah. Most races. So. When you hear about the old days where you had a two time loser rule at Western States, where if you entered the lottery twice and didn't get in, you were automatically uh, yeah. put in the next year. I mean, that's unfathomable uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. Even back then, I think I put in for Western once or twice, didn't get in, and then I never pursued it. I didn't never mind. I didn't run Western. You know, I ran Vermont and I got two finishes at Umstead. You yep. know, that course. It's yep. a 12 mile eight time. Yep. 
they say easy, but it's not right in my mind. But and then my my big race was Mohican 100 in Ohio. I got six finishes there. That yeah. was always my race because I'd lived in Columbus for quite a while. Um, but, you know, you just one time I remember Mohican. I, did, I think I had an injury or I, I was traveling or something. I walked up to a picnic table and entered an hour before the race. <laughs> you know, wow. there's pencils laying out. There's pencils and forms. And you fill it out. And I, I, I scribbled a check and threw it on the table and went to the race an hour before. So you think, well, you know, those are that's good, too. Right. Those are advantages. Wow. In that, in that era, you know. Yeah. Can you great. imagine everyone that everybody that's new to the scene, take a minute and just think about this for a second. That was um, great. Imagine, you know, you're signing up, you, you you can you can drive out to Damascus, Virginia, and an hour before the race, Jason Green would have a, a table <laughs> full of entry forms and some pencils, and then you could write them out a check. By the way, do you remember the entry fee for Mohican when you when you signed oh, up an I hour before? It was, it was sixty bucks I think, back then, or something. Sixty or seventy bucks, maybe <laughs> in those days back when I ran it. That was you know uh, late nineties through early two thousands when I was running it there. And you know, it's yeah. crazy. What's crazy too is they didn't ha- have the gear that was directed towards ultra runners like they have now. No. Uh-huh. Like like there was no trail shoes. With with deep not really, and, you know. The remember the what were those first ones that came out and they were just like cement. They didn't even bend. I can't remember what those were, but they would just tear your feet raw because they didn't bend. But they were called Montreal. I think they, it was Montreal. Montreal yep, the first yep, ones. Yep. They were gray, and I had one pair, and I couldn't wear them. They didn't bend, you know. <laughs> right, but they right. wouldn't cut your feet on rocks either. But no, there wasn't a whole lot of extra equipment and a lot of stuff. We just took out of marathon running, you know. Yeah. You sort of just and there were bottles, you know. Belts with bottles. That yeah. was really the only thing we really had, I think, back then. You no weren't, ladders, none of that. You weren't old school enough to do the maple syrup bottle, were you? No, I you know, I never was even that big on all the drinks. You know, yeah. I, I'm trying to think but where I used to screw up is when I'd start blowing up, I'd always start eating that junk food off those aid stations, <laughs> which just makes it worse, right, right? Right. Instead of trying to stay the course. So uh yeah, I was not too, but there was no plan. You know, it's not like, hey, I'm going to have 1.3 gel packs every mile or something. There was no plan like that. Well, yeah. And I think about it now and how easy that we have it now, especially. Yes. And, 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 and I say easy, but nutrition is still the biggest part of the puzzle that I, I think it people is. get wrong. It is. And it it's is. it's so much easier than when you were doing it. I mean, I've got yeah. a, a, a gel that I like that is 250 calories. It says it right, right on the bag. 250 calories. I pop one of those an hour, drink a little bit. I can go all day long where you didn't have that stuff. You had like this weird, you, you some people ate candy bars. They get like little Snickers yeah. bars, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time at Mohican, this guy flew in from Seattle. He was a hot dogger, you know, and flew in from Seattle for Mohican. So he was talking a lot of trash pre-race and <laughs> he was a big nutrition guy. Yeah. And, and the big check at Mohican, I believe still is, is called Covered Bridge. Yeah. And it's like a clover leaf, and it comes back there like three or four times. Yeah. Okay. And we were coming through there, my friend and myself and Mark Carroll. He was a good, we used to call ourselves the Ohio Posse. There were six <laughs> or eight of us that ran together. And I was coming through with Mark Carroll, I don't remember, 50 miles, 60 miles. And there was that guy from Seattle in a fetal position in a garbage bag, <laughs> laying there at Covered Bridge, shaking. <laughs> And we looked at him. I said, I guess that nutrition plan didn't work out. <laughs> so, you know, we'd get all kinds, but it was funny to hear that because back then there wasn't much talk about a nutrition plan. I don't even, you know, there was still guys, you know, you want the burgers and the fries right. and the hot dogs, the things they would cook, but there was no real 
real plan to that. No. And one other thing, you know, when it, when the marketing came, you don't even half marathons. Yeah. There's an aid station every mile. They got gels out. No. Right. Well, I remember Mohican, that first 10, 12 mile was a road section. It was a gravel dirt road. I wouldn't touch anything for 12, 13 miles just to shake the dust off. Yeah. You know, just start running and jogging and getting the groove. Well, you're 12, you're a half marathon in before you even thought about drinking or eating anything. So I think there wasn't any plan saying you better get water every mile, you better right. get a gel. It just, it just didn't exist. And I, I can't speak what everybody else was doing, but, you know, that was just the quality of what we had. Well, you know what that one guy was doing? He was shivering on the side of the trail in a garbage bag. <laughs> he would not. Yeah, I don't know what happened to that guy, but whatever he was eating evidently didn't do it. So <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. Yeah. You run past so me. Like, you know, there were so many guys like that. And I think, you know, with, that was a West Coast thing. Again, you know, mm-hmm. I think, frankly, the West Coast was a little more accelerated. But I think they had a bigger density of ultra runners. Yeah. Too. You know, you get up to the Bay Area. I did American River 50 one time. That yeah. was great. Uh, but you get around the, the Northern California, a lot of major markets in California. There was just more ultra runners condensed. Yeah. So they probably talked among themselves more. That's where the information probably came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I just think about you just running past that guy going, hey, Seattle, welcome to Ohio. <laughs> We just looked down at him. I remember looking down at him. So it was funny. But anyway, you know, not to make fun because that could have been me. It, is, it has been me. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, those were good times. You know, like I said there were so many ultras. And I, as I think, I can come up with memories, but I don't remember every every detail. But there were a lot of 50 miles. Ice Age 50 in Ohio. Or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, in Wisconsin. Yep. yep. You might have, I'm a, I ran that six or seven or eight times. So there's quite a few, but I sure did enjoy that, you know, when I was out there. And, the, and we'll get to that in this study. You know, in this study, there's something called sign value, which yeah. is social identity. Right. And clearly, you know, I was I was clearly going for that identity. I really liked it. Well, let's let's get into this research because I, we, we I could talk old school ultra running all day so long. Could we, I, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I we, appreciate. We could that, do a two know? hour long old school ultra running podcast would be an absolute hoot. Oh, uh, there's you know, last time I was on your old show, I told yep. you about Tom Green, you know, and mm-hmm. meeting him, and there was Dennis the Animal Hair was one H E R R was a big guy, you know, and and I remember seeing him at Bull Run Run, and yeah, it just those memories are just so great but again so fringe and no information so i guess that's the point of it you know yeah you didn't have that information but now let's no. go let's 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 talk about the data you, you by the way you were in marketing for a very long time had a successful marketing career then you went yes. got your masters and then you decided you wanted to get your phd you wanted to get your your, your yes. doctorate in communications I did. And was this, you, you said earlier, was this was this the research that you did? Was this part of your dissertation to get your doctorate? Yeah, okay. I really messed it up because as my, my uh, by the way, shout out to Dr. John Sutherland, who was my mentor. And he, he would look me in the eye and say, you do not know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> and he would tell me that again. And the truth is, I didn't. I didn't. But I went there and I was so happy because here I am 45 years old at that time. This is later in life. Yeah. I got into University of Florida, which is arguably top three for advertising PhD, yeah. which is what I was going for. So I'm at the big show yeah. and this guy's teaching me and he was really good. So I wanted to do something and I got, and he let me sort of run too far without stopping me. But my actual dissertation was involvement, the individual versus team sport experience. Hmm. It was a mess because you don't go, you shouldn't put that much in one study. And what I did is ultra running was the individual sport. And I had just come off my last agency job and I had taken um, 
rally car racing to X Games in Los Angeles. That okay. was my last job. So I was into the rally car scene really heavy. Yeah. So I thought, here's this really sort of fringe team sport. And then ultra running is arguably an individual sport. Right. So right. I, I did this big comparison study. So part of it, though, I, I isolated for this is I did finally publish this paper on just the ultra running part of involvement. Okay, so let's kind of talk about that for a second. What I, okay. I did see that when you did this study, you did find that the average ultra runner ran about just just over forty miles a week. This was the average. Yep. Yep. I sent you some stats on what we remember. That was the sample set we got from sending out to Umstead runners and mm-hmm. sent Ultra Running Magazine helped us. And yeah, so we sort of had these averages. And how about the how much they spent? Did you see that? It was, oh, yes, over two grand, two, right? <laughs> two grand a year they were spending and how much they ran. So yeah, we tried to sort of profile all these ultra runners, at least at that point in time. And by the way, this was like 2009. Okay. So 2009, kind yeah. of right. This is right before the big boom. Yeah, I would. It was still yeah. The internet wasn't really caught up yet either. Otherwise, I would have been doing more with the internet, right? right. To try to even get to survey respondents, I had to go to the magazine, et cetera. So, gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. what, what did you find? What What were some of the interesting points doing this research where you were like, yes. "Oh, well, I, I didn't expect that." Well, you know, let's let's go in. I'll show you. And I did send you this study, but mm-hmm. there were some graphs on there. But here, just in, I love to do this because I teach research now. And one thing I've learned is. How do you explain it in a practical sense? Because right. it's real easy to you know spin off in the jargon and all yeah. that, and it, it, that's not what my students need either. So th- there's one scale by a woman called Zykowski, Judith Zykowski, and she actually emailed with me when I did this. Which yeah. she, she's a rock star, so I thought, how nice. And she invented this involvement scale. Mm-hmm. And all we need to know about this this ten a scale is items that measure together. So you know, it's about if you see ever see on a survey. 10 statements, you know, you've seen them strongly disagree to strongly agree. Right. Yep. Right. Well, a scale will have eight or 10 or 12 items together and they do something. Mm-hmm. Zykowski scale, and this was important for this study, it's either effective or cognitive. Okay. Effect, real simple. Effective is emotion. Mm-hmm. It's emotion. What does, does emotion drive you? Right. Yeah. In advertising, we use a lot of emotion. Oh, right? yeah. Right. So in cognitive is fact-based. Okay. Cognitive is fact-based, and I've got a little bit of theory on this. So, you know, those were the two measures in the Zykowski scale that was in it. Now, there was one other scale by two other guys called Laurent and Kapferer. Laurent and Kapfer. Little more involved, but I'll go through it real quick. There's five measures in that scale. So mm-hmm. we're testing for all of this. Okay. Yeah. One is importance. Really, how do you rank ultra running in your life? Right. You know, is it way up at the top or is it sort of inconsequential? Yeah. Okay. Second, pleasure. You, you know, hedonic pleasure. Just what you give yourself, you know, how you enjoy something. Mm-hmm. So there's a measure for that. Risk consequence means, am I making a good choice here? Yeah. Might even be choice of races. And there's even right. one question like that. When I, I think one of them was, if I make the wrong choice, I get really upset. Yeah. So it's, where do I race? How do right. I race? So there's this risk consequence of the decisions I make. And then risk probability is something really going to go right or wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like even race is, you know, you might say in altering, well, I'm not really trained for this 100 mile. What's my risk probability and even finishing this? Thing? Right. Then the last one is sign value, which I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. What's on your T-shirt? 
Right. right? What do you want to be seen as? Right. You know, and I, I ran, I'm, here I am, I've still got a t-shirt on. So, you know, you run around and say, what group do I want to be identified with? Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's, we have seven different types of things, you know, emotion, yeah. fact-based cognition, and then importance, pleasure, risk consequence, risk probability, and sign value. Okay. All in this survey, that's sort of how you pull out, pull out the data to do measures. Because I would think just just knowing the ultra runners that i know it is a very emotional sport okay the mo- the, the mind of an ultra runner i'm guessing is more emotional than fact based but i am not a professor at appalachian state university Whoa. so i could really be off on that well then it's no but that's valid right cuz you know what i always say is you know what's your personal anecdotal experience right, right? so you, to you you may feel that or you may have five friends that you see are really highly emotional Okay, but what was found was really interesting is that the big predictor of perceived skill was only cognition. It was only cognition. So think of even way back then, I would think. And again, here's where you theorize. If your perception of your own skill is cognitive, that's got to be fact based. And even back in 2009, it's like, well, I wanted to run a 945 and I ran a 1015. That fact in itself, that's a statistical fact, you ran 30 minutes slow, that affects how you view your skill level. Hmm. Okay. It wasn't like, man, I had the greatest time. I feel so fulfilled. Okay. So we're, we're, we're mulling through the data. And maybe that's why, you know, the, um, the, the GPS watch has, has done so well. Yes. Why Strava is what it is. Because people are just, they want to crunch the numbers. They want to, they want to do that data. Absolutely. And they don't want to go by feel. Okay, that's very, that's very interesting. And think of this. Remember where the title of this research was Absolute Unitary Being. Yeah. Back then, it was really about your data. You didn't have much. Oh, think of this. The only other comparative data you had in those days mm-hmm. were the, the time results in Ultra Running Magazine. Yeah. Right. So you see, I ran 32nd place and I got 10 hours and Eric Clifton got 542 or something. Yeah. That's all you had nowadays. How many thousands of times does someone screen snip their Strava something? <laughs> right. Right. Or their, their watch. Their ultra sign up score. The, yeah. The data and ultra. So you've got all this data now. So I would think cognition is only going to be more and more and more prevalent in how an ultra runner views themselves. That's interesting because I, I think of, of of you know the people that i know and, and it is a very emotional connection to the event mm-hmm. and just but you're right i you know when you when you talked about fact based i immediately i immediately thought of bob hearn and he's the guy who won vol state this past year who right. who was a fascinating interview if you've not heard the interview um all all hail king bob it's a back episode theadventurejogger.com that man's mind is beautiful and the way he works it figures things out it's data and all of that stuff that was fascinating to me i always love the episodes where i can ask a question sit back for 10 minutes and just not i don't even feel like i'm earning my keep uh with, with episodes like that but i kind of viewed him as an outlier but he's really not he just takes what all of us do to an extreme okay. level and some people love their stats right mm-hmm. they love to know and they're incrementally judging every bit so that skill level we perceive our skill level on that but I'd like, let me tell one anecdotal yeah. story. And I almost still, it's funny, all these years later, I still get emotional about this. Yeah. But I never viewed myself as a great runner. I was a good middle pack person, yeah. like, but I always tried really hard. 
ultra running was never natural to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always suffered in a hundred miler. Well, yeah. I had one, I had one good one that was magic, but the rest were all really hard. And I remember there were two guys that were really big back in the day in Ohio, the Godale brothers, Mark, Mark Godale, still around Steve Godale. Yeah. They were big top three guys all the time. And I remember it, I can't even remember what race this was, but you know, many races have out and back legs, mm-hmm. right? Where they, yeah. you see each other. Yeah. And we were at the finish, and I didn't know I knew, knew me that well, but Steve Godale walked up to me and looked me in the eye, and he said, you ran really well today. Yeah. That emotional validation to this day makes me emotional. I mean, it's so powerful wow. that he would come up to me or, you know, to sit at the campfire with Tom Green that time he gave me a ride back to the car. Yeah. And, and knowing I'm sitting at his campfire, just me and him and his wife for that given night. Yeah. Now – you can't tell me those kind of emotional validations aren't huge in the sport, aren't huge in our memories, right? Yeah. They've got, to me, those, the, what else do I remember? I told you, I can't remember what much, <laughs> but I can sure picture Steve Godale coming up to me and saying, you ran really well today. You must have been know? flying so, after that. Oh, uh, well, I, and I don't, yeah, I just thought that the validation of that, and that's mm-hmm. sure emotional because I feel emotional right now telling yeah. you that. But is, is so there's got to be, a, what about the middle backpacker? that doesn't even believe in themselves. Or I remember one time pacing at Columbus, a woman running in our pace group told me, I'm not supposed to be here because my husband hates me so much for running. Wow. And I thought, you know, there's things going on that who who cares what the finish is, but for her that day to finish when she was told she was really invalidated, doing a terrible thing for running, so do you see that there's got to be, just because statistics say this, I like to keep measuring effective and cognitive. Yeah. Because emotions still got to be in here somewhere. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and then the one last thing, to go back to that Laurent and Capper scale, the other thing we found out was that um, intention to participate, you know, there was a measure in there how intent I am in the coming year to participate. Mm-hmm. It was pleasure and sign value. So just pleasure, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm having a good time. This pleasure and sign value again is that social identity. Those were the, so what makes ultra runners keep coming back? I'm having a good time and I like being identified with this group of people. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I, <clears throat> I, it makes perfect sense. And you see in the sport now, there's, there's groups within the groups, right? Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the race directors that are seeing a lot of success now, are creating that experience like because nobody nobody i i think sometimes people get caught up in in the the course itself right like is the course itself beautiful and then that's and then that's 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 okay that's that's part of it but creating that atmosphere of 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 just that experience whether it's the people that are are around you or whether it's just the the aid stations are so supportive and so like you just have that experience that atmosphere that that positive experience yep. at the race and then a lot of these these groups I mean you see them all over the place Tom there's yep. there's probably there's probably an ultra marathon group near Appalachian State that you mm-hmm. know it it becomes this this group this this that I'm a part of it's more than just what I do it's it's who I am Mm-hmm. And I think that's that has because the sport's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't going bowling on Tuesday night. You mm-hmm. know, this is hard stuff for most people. You, there's preparation. There's injuries. Yeah. There's a lot of things you have to face. So to do it as a group and to be identified as that 
you know, again, showed up here is clearly intention to participate. If I don't have that identity, I might not keep coming back. Is right. The way I view that, you know. So I think there's just so many great ways to look at it. But going back to you know testing again, and I, in, a, in the conclusion of this, I want to ask if possibly certain listeners would take my new survey, and I'm going to give you that link. Absolutely, uh, I'd Absolutely. like to test it again. And one mm-hmm. one thing I'm putting in there, maybe I'm giving away a little of the survey, but I put it's called a binomial question or dichotomous, but yeah. it's two, and it says when I it's something like when I am ultra running, I am. Mm-hmm. A solitary lone wolf yeah or feeding off the power of the pack yeah because i want to test against those two and then i can run some of these predictor variables against it and let's see again what motivates the lone runner maybe that's someone that's a little antisocial. maybe they don't need the mm-hmm. social identity yeah but the the one that's you know powering by the pack that you would think again would show more of that sign value mm-hmm. but i don't know i mean i like to test it again and see what we get because the sport now is really maybe it is a lot the same i don't know or is it that different I, the, the peripheral is different but once it's you in the trail that isn't so different i i think honestly tom if you were to do this research in 1988 you would have got some different uh results than had mm-hmm. you've done when you did it in 2009 and i think your results will be a slightly different when you do it yes. in 2022 yes. and if you want to participate in tom's study you can just go to the show notes of this of this episode you'll see it in the description there'll be a link there you can click that link open that link and you can take this test and you can uh, be a part of this survey and and figure out some some results and let's see if if the ultra runner has changed over the over the past couple of years so you'll be able I, to i'd like there. to it's, it's simple less than 10 minutes you know mm-hmm. i don't want i know surveys are becoming a burden you know yeah. people don't like them but for the purpose of this show or this user group if we could get 200 yeah. that would be sort of a great little if more is better right but if we could get 200 or so and just look at what are people thinking and i always like to sort of go behind the veil because you know a lot of times if you see statistics people talk about descriptive statistics and that's disproportional as in well 32 percent male and 71 percent female Mm -hmm. filled out this survey you know or 38 percent like something and that portion 22 percent don't that's just sort of describing who these people are but what, what this is is called inferential statistics because it infers something. Yeah. And it's fun to go behind this, sort of go behind the curtain yeah. and, and see what are people thinking, you know, in a way, how do they think or what's motivating them to do these sports? It'll be you interesting, know. too, because I'm sure you can attest to this, Tom, back when you were running ultras in the 80s. Uh, it was it was probably like ladies night at a local bar, mostly men. Um, and yes. it, But now you see, I don't know what the last... There's some race directors that actually have a higher female participation rate than male participation mm-hmm. rate. But I think the sport overall is 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 inching towards 50-50. Um, I yeah. don't know the, the exact stat, but I'm sure when you were in it, it was probably 80-20. Um, yeah. It was a boys club, and it's so great to see more and more um, the sport becoming you know equal between the genders and seeing that participation level um, increase across both sides it'll be interesting to see too what that does to the results of the survey right and we can always isolate data for you know one thing i'm going to do here by the way too is you know gender sort of out right now because there's a lot of different identities and i yeah. think i put a scale in there to just tell me your personality trait feminine to masculine yeah so we can sort of take a look at that and see what's there but um I wanted to make a comment going back. Yeah. I don't think the sport was that gracious to lower or non-performers in my day. 
you know, we were there and allowed to participate, but it was all about who was doing business. Yeah. You know, who was really good on the course. And, you know, by the way, you've done good work in this. And I want to give you a shout out talking about the different you've had guests on talking about different bodies, right? different types of body shapes. Yeah. You know, and, and we're doing better at that. We don't body shame. Yeah. like we used to. And it's not like the super sleek guy or gal gets the most priority. Yeah. So I think there is, there's more of an inclusiveness now. And, you know, I would also suggest people are there for different reasons because if there's emotional validation and you're in the last 10% of the field, yeah. that's not a bad thing. Right. You know, maybe you're getting it for different reasons. So that's something else we could look at too is sort of well, sort of a, we we test for training and how much people run per week, et cetera. Yeah. I've always wondered, I wonder if we should put something in there if we still have time about where you finish in the pack. Yeah. Just that kind of get, how would you identify yourself a front of the packer, middle of the packer, back of the yes, packer? It'd be that simple. We could do three or four, like, yeah, front, middle, back. It's yeah. simple. And then we'd have three groups and we could look at the groups and see what they do too. Yeah. yeah. So here's the thing. Once you get data, you know how this goes. There's a, there's 10,000 combinations you can mm, test. Yeah. And honestly, as I look back at this study, learning in 2009, I would do a lot. I will do it a lot. There's a lot of different ways I would test this data today, 25 research projects later yeah. than I would have then. So it's a, it's, a, it's a learning process too. What are your thoughts? If you've, as you've done this research before, is there something to the effect that you, you look at when ultra running kind of burst onto the scene, you look at, at prosperity, right? And I look at past generations, you know, you got the greatest generation had to deal with a lot of crap. Life was tough for the greatest mm-hmm. generation. When you've got the second world war and you've got a massive amount of casualties and you've got life is tough. You got that great depression. Then you got this big war. And so they had to deal and live with hard things. Yeah. Every single day. Yeah. I think about my grandpa, who who is a dairy farmer. His life was hard every yeah. single day. And then the 80s, you've got this kind of boom and the suburban boom, right? Where yeah. we're, we're all now yeah. working these jobs and we're and, and the jobs the jobs are changing too. I mean, it, it, we still have farmers and all that stuff, but the bulk of, of, of folks are working these different jobs. And I wonder if there's anything to to the the allure of ultra running being a primitive a primitive need for hard things like not having it like our lives for some of us is just so easy compared to our grandfathers mm-hmm. our, our great grandfathers or you know you can mm-hmm. go back even farther than that um, that there is just some sort of deep rooted primitive need to have hard things in your life. I would agree. And let me take that just one step further. And I'll, I'll, I want to be transparent here about mm-hmm. some of my own issues with ultra running. I have used it in the past for validation. Mm-hmm. I've been the, so a lot of a really hard event can validate you in a way. And if you ever feel deficient or in my case, some things weren't going on very good in my life, you know, some right. things around my life, ultra running allowed me to validate myself. So I think the hardness of it, it's never going to get easy, right? right? A hundred miles, I don't care where you put it, it's hard. So uh, it's a validation and maybe people, when life, and also people have more expectation in life now, I think, than they might have back when I, you know, people had jobs, they were just jobs. A lot of people didn't expect a lot of fulfillment, Mm -hmm. like you're uh, a farmer. Right. But yeah, there's, there's more expectation now to have good experience and maybe hard, hard is a validation. 
in that. Well, you know, it, yeah. There's probably validation scales. You probably measure just for validation. But yeah, I think that's true. Well, I know for me personally, I mean, my dad he was a floor installer for for 40 years and that's that's hard hard work real hard work and he yes, worked he worked a lot of hours to make sure that his kids would have opportunities that he didn't have mm-hmm. so he could maybe explore some things that didn't require us to trash our bodies for you know 70 hours a week and so yeah. i've always kind of looked at him as kind of he, my dad is, is, is I guess, uh, my, my symbol, if you will, of what a successful man is. Like, I, I measure, yeah. he is yeah. the top of the successful man scale for me. And I know for ultra, for when I found ultra running, and there was just this sense of, I can do this hard, I think I can do this hard stuff because mm-hmm. I come from a man who can really do hard stuff. And so, okay. maybe to okay. see like, Am I, am I, this is going to get kind of weird. I'm sure some, some psychiatrist could really grab some things. Well, I think there's, there's, there has to be underpin, there's there's psychological underpinnings for all of us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Continue, continue. Am I, am I, am I this man's son? Do I deserve to be called this man's son? And, and I think of, of all the finishes that I've had, they've all been great, but there has never been a better finish for me in my mind than when my dad is there. Oh yeah. Yeah. When I, when when he sees that, that's what that's that to me, there's, there's no metal, there's no buckle, there's no t-shirt for me. That is as awesome as having dad at the finish line. Well, that's, that's, and isn't that really the ultimate validation to have someone else experience you completing this, journey yeah of sorts at a race so we went kind of off track into my own yeah. personal uh, personal i think issues. but that's good though i mean i do that and a lot of my studies are about and i always say i like it personal anecdotal but then i think what what else can we understand about the group as a whole right you right know, what what do we know about people that that can help us and by the way in the world i'm in advertising this is what people do because we try to understand psychological motivators and that's how we create messaging yeah so if someone would use this ultra study they'd probably look at what are the predominant uh dimensions of involvement and then sort of build advertising toward that you know if social identity is the biggest driver well then let's build a big club you know right. brand x is the club right yeah. w- welcome everybody do you welcome worry in, you know do you worry, Tom, that you're you're kind of unleashing Pandora's box here? As the sport, and especially when you got into it, this was a grassroots, old school. Yeah. It was not yeah. corporate. And right. each year, you know, each passing year, the sport becomes more of a for-profit entity. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, l- a little concerned because has it become elitist, mm-hmm. financially elitist? Yes. I'm elitist, right? Yes. Because in my day, you know, I'll tell you, there was a lot of working working class folks running ultras and not so cool gears, you know, right. and gear. And it was just anything. And I mean, there were some good people, but now you've got to have some cash. Like, what what did I have here? A couple, two, two grand a year. Some people were spending, right. you know, that's a couple of plane tickets. So yeah. now people are flying to races, you know, the, the costs are very high to enter, mm-hmm. right? And so if you want to race a bunch, like I used to every year, good grief, it's, you got you to have some cash. Oh, for sure. Do, right? do, do you worry about that, that the sport moves in that direction and we lose something? Because I think the sport, if the sport becomes a affluent person's sport, 
right. the barrier of entry gets so high that we turn away a whole lot of people just because they can't participate due to financial reasons. Right. I, I wonder if we lose more than we gain. Well, it's scary. And from a business sense, I watch what happened to, you know, Ironman and triathlon. And, mm-hmm. you know, people just basically what I think people in business says business is to profit. And what's the threshold of spending? Right. How far can we take these people? Yep. Can we take them to a thousand dollars to get in the lottery to see if they can even get into a race? Right. How far? And then and you see, you know, there's more corporate type entities buying up events, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Leadville, others. So if the whole thing gets bought up into these big packages and there's a lot of movement going on, I do gravel bikes now. There's a lot of movement in gravel bikes. Yeah, Big events coming in, Red Bulls coming in. So do they try to build that to be as open to as many people as they can so that the brand gets better exposure or is it a profit center? Yeah. You know, is an event is a is a race forty bucks like the old days or four hundred? Because yeah, right? I mean, you've seen the prices go way up. I've oh, yeah. I've been running ultras since two thousand fourteen, and I've seen the prices yeah, go up really dramatically up. Uh, yeah. for races. Now, I will say the one thing that I do love is there all there are those race directors, those old school race directors, right? That it's and those old school races still exist, and 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 there's still a place for that. And I don't see those getting pushed out. If you do the the, the work and the research, you can find those those race directors and old races where it is not about you know uh, paying off the race directors um bmw it's about the community right and 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 the you know the event and 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 celebrating that community but i i I do i do worry about it because it does seem like it's it's getting it's getting tougher each year and even when the sport was fringe, you remember Horton Horton was a university professor putting on races. Yeah. That's all, you know, when we went to, you know, Rattlesnake Trail in West Virginia and all, of, it was just some local guy. You know, usually yeah. it's a local track coach yep. or something. And again, pencils and a picnic table and some <laughs> sign up. You know, it was a real local, you know, but, but again, these individuals had other lives and I don't think they were trying to make a lot of money. Now, I don't want to say it's wrong to make money. No, it's not. not. You know, these other companies come in. They have investments. They have staff now. They have yep. a lot of other costs, and and they want to make money. You know, uh, who bought Leadville Lifetime Fitness? Yeah, yep, yeah. Well, they're making money. This is this is an ancillary business venture to what they do with their fitness centers. So I mm. get that too. I'm well, not trying yeah. to say no. Oh no, and and I think Lifetime. I know the first year that Lifetime was a part of Leadville, they had problems. They okay. let in way too many people. They didn't have enough supplies. Parking was yeah, a mess. Yeah. It was a disaster. Mm-hmm. I was able to uh, experience Leadville. It was the, the the year after the big disaster, or the second year after. And I will say okay. that they figured it out, and it did not. To me, it did not feel like a a corporate for-profit mm-hmm. event it felt very old school and it felt like the town was really behind it and it, yeah. it just felt yeah. like it felt like an ultra marathon they did a great job doing it western mm-hmm. states does it as well they do a great job of keeping that charm they because you worry that you know when it does become about profit it gets more sterile right there's you lose that yeah. that connection that emotional yeah. c- connection yeah. that 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 embrace that just that community but none of those have i've not i've yet to be to a race where it's felt sterile and corporate right. i think too with ultras one other thing they're always going to have to push harder to make more because you're always going to have limited fields mm-hmm. right yeah. on these right. there's land rights problems yep. you know like this big uh 
number one, I'd argue gravel race in the U.S. is called Unbound yeah. in Kansas, right? Yeah. They put a couple thousand people on that course on race day, a yeah. couple thousand, right? Ultra running, you just can't do that. No. Right? You just can't. So you're always going to have a universal what's a max, four or five hundred yeah. maybe on a course. So you're working with a smaller g- group of participants, so again, this is, you know, I guess deviating a little bit, but I do have opinions on this. And if I was an advertiser or something, I would always suggest or a brand that's buying an event, they get involved with some research. Mm-hmm. You know, universities will take it on as a project. You don't yeah. got to spend 50 grand, but to do some research behind what you're doing and try to get some information back on maybe what is the psychological profile that motivates people mm-hmm. and, and, and th- be thoughtful about that. Maybe that's that's a way to do it to at least have the right messages. But for cost in that, you know, am I going to go back out and spend three hundred bucks on a race? Probably not. But I'm not the person coming up in the sport, right? With that big hunger yeah. to be involved, you know, that's where it's always going to be. It seems like you know, and I, I I did say earlier I worry, but I I do think there's those race directors that are holding that there's still those small race directors that that are going to do those events. They're gonna they're gonna keep it cool. I always mention Jason Green because if you want a mm-hmm. a study and someone who's doing it right, yeah. um, Jason Green is doing it right. And there's lots of other Jason Greens out there, but that's just one yeah. guy. He's he's well, the, he's the only one that returns my calls on a regular basis. Uh, <laughs> he's great. I listen to every show you do. And you know, by the way, I love the Creeper. I live an hour away. I ride my bike on the Creeper. I know that I know the Creeper really well. Yeah. So I mean, I know what he's doing there. I know what he's doing on that course. It's a good place to have an ultra. It's a good place because it's real predictable. Yeah. You know, it's not one of those races where you're going to get lost. It's not a race where you're going to get, you know, put off into some really rough stuff. But it's a nice, it's a beautiful place to be. So there's even like Umstead, same thing. You know, you're running at Umstead State Park. That hasn't changed. You know, they're still kicking it off at the same log cabin place and feeding you pancakes. So it's all good, you know, but I, I do like the sport and I'd like to, and I don't know, I just thought about, we talked about this a long time ago, but I just thought about what would it look like if we do this again? And I'd be always happy to share, you know, the profile of what we learn about people. Yeah. And then that would be something that goes forward. And, you know, in research, you're always trying to build on something else and then someone else can take it forward. Right. So maybe in another 10, 12, 15 years, someone else does the study and tries to understand what's going on with ultra runners. Because you'll be retired. You won't be living in Boone, North Carolina anymore. I don't I don't know. I got a house in Florida yet, Gainesville. So I might be back down. About, you know, we used to run a place down there called Croom. Croom had a 50 mile and a 50K. It was down by Ocala National Park, I yeah. think, Ocala, Florida. Yeah. They had two ultras a year down there. I ran that one a lot. Uh, those ultras used to be called nature parks. And a lot of them would be like four four seven four eight mile loops of a nature park yeah and uh that was an ultra and i remember there was also one down by sarasota right on the gulf and it was it was great so yeah a lot of florida ultra running in the day too yeah it doesn't get as cold down in florida as it gets in boone from time to time no they had a spring and a fall race always at ocala so that was great (laughs) uh but you know it's all fun i and i have good memories and you know i'm not in position to run as fast or as long as i used to but we all have a period of time in the sport. You know, mm-hmm. there's a few that hang really long. Yeah. And there's a lot, there's a lot of people that go really hard, but once again, back to cognitive, yep. once the results start to fall, when do they go out of the sport? When the results start to tip off. Yep. Yeah. A lot of guys think Andy Jones Wilkins doesn't mind coming back and running at a different pace. Right. That's not for everybody. A lot of people when they can't keep getting the results they had, 
it's time to go and that's he, cognition yeah i wonder if he's got a more emotional connection to it like it's, it's we all more, do yeah. you know it's it's funny and i'm not saying data has all the answers mm-hmm. it's just how do things test in data but even if you're if cognition is you know what gets builds our intent it's still about how we feel in those emotional because you can't run ultras without having emotion either absolutely if you, you want to help uh, dr mueller with his new study at Appalachian State University, getting inside the mind. Why do we do the things we do? What? Why do we do it? What makes us ultra runners? Why do we do it? There's a link in the uh, description of the show. You can click on that. You, you can take the survey. It'll, it'll take 10 minutes, and we'll get some some more research. And then we'll have you on again to kind of dissect the research, and we can compare you know, 2009 to 2022. We will. And kind of see yeah. if some of the things we were hypothesizing about. We um, were, that is correct. We are hypothesizing. And I'll be able to tell you how many lone wolves we have mm-hmm. or how many sheeps in the pack. Exactly. We'll um, figure that out, too. Before we go, I know the, the, the title of your university is a word that has said two different ways. Oh, yes. Be careful. I, growing up in Wisconsin, okay. I said Appalachian. Is, yeah. is what I said over and over again. Ooh. And then yeah. moving south to Tennessee, I met a guy from West Virginia, and, and he's got a very thick West Virginia accent, good friend yes. of mine. And he's like, what the hell is the Appalachian Trail? It's the Appalachian Trail. That's how we know someone's an outsider because they say Appalachian. Right, Do, right, right. And you guys, say, you say Appalachian yeah. State. Apple, well, when you turn the door and what falls and turns, well, it's the latch. Right. Apple latch, state latch, latch. <laughs> right. Because was it? Just remember latch. It was like 10 years ago when, when Appalachian State upset Michigan. Oh, good grief. That That is the number one PR piece for the university to this day. <laughs> right. Is that Michigan game? But it was, it was so funny to listen to uh, sportscasters. It was, it was split. I mean, it was you heard Appalachian yeah. State a lot, and you heard yeah. you heard Appalachian State. Appalach, yeah. Why is there two? Do you know why there's two ways to say that word? I, you know, I, I don't know. I think honestly, if you go far enough north, it's probably from people that have never been here or been in the culture, and they just look at it phonetically. They read it, yeah. Appalachian. I right. mean, wouldn't you sort of say that if you just saw it? But yeah. I got corrected down here within the first 48 hours. <laughs> you know, it, is a, it is a big deal. I don't, I'll probably get attacked if I would say, is it really that big of a deal? But it is. That I'm just so. I'm just picturing you going, I just applied for a big gig. I just got a job at Appalachian State University. I can't wait to be there. It's like, hey, guys, yeah. I, this is so great to be at Appalachian State University. And they just stopped oh, and yeah. looked, oh, like a record yeah. scratch. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, yeah, there's so there's in, when you're a professor, there's weird things like another show, but community communication and communications is two different things that's mm-hmm. another big argument so it's it's all good but i appreciate uh, what you've done for me and let me talk about this and i'm always happy to share if there's interest if we get enough surveys back i'd love to come back just for a few minutes and tell you what happened that'd be data. an absolute blast and we do have to do at some point have you back on just so we can talk old school for a little longer you know, if you, when you get me going, I start remembering these stories. So I probably got a key up on it. There's a few. There, there's a few I can still tell you. I even got a Gary Cantrell story. I don't know if I should tell, but maybe I will. Save that for next time. Save okay. save the Gary story for next time. What I have to do is I'll have to head out to Boone, and we'll have to do like one live from like the the, the cool campus bar. You can get a there couple in you, and then let it flow. 
There's a new beer bar and it's an industrial beer bar. So we can go there. Oh, an industrial beer bar. That sounds well, very they sort of built They sort of built this place to brew more beer, but mm-hmm. now they have a bar where they brew it. So that's sort of, and there's a big patio. That's I think not, this is this is a date. This is going to happen. I'm, 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 I'm looking at, at Trivago right now, trying to find a good hotel room. Dr. Thomas go. Mueller, Appalachian State University. Thank you so thank much you. for joining us on the Adventure Jogger. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Adventure Jogger. AdventureJogger.com is where you're going to go to see back episodes, including the one I talked about. And there's even gear if you want to have some jogging pants in your life. We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search the Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode.